coming out of here, that ship is going to blow now. Mr. Coleman. It's the one thing any Canadian knows about Halifax. Come on, come on, acknowledge. The Halifax Explosion. December 6th, 1917. Two ships, the Mont Blanc and the Emo, collide in the harbour. One filled with explosives. Alan Ruffman has been studying the resulting tragedy for years. He's an environmental scientist and author. The explosion is essentially a very fast-burning fire. And the explosive materials that were on board the ship was a considerable amount of uh, picric acid, a relatively small amount of TNT, which is a new explosive, and then there was uh, one other material. Drums of benzol, a highly flammable jet fuel. And the crew of the Mont Blanc and the captain of the Mont Blanc knew right away they were not going to be able to contain that fire. They, had, they didn't have the pumps. They couldn't flood the ship. It, you know, it was just the ship was going to blow up. But in the meantime, the fire on the deck was blowing up barrels of benzol. So every so often there'd be a, uh, a pop. What resulted was the largest man-made explosion prior to the atomic bomb. When the ship blew up, it just went straight up in the air. And, of course, a huge plume of uh, black smoke that went at least 12,000 feet in the air. The Mont Blanc was instantly destroyed. Every building and person within a half-mile radius was obliterated. The Emo was tossed into the Dartmouth shore, and the shockwave broke every single window in the city. This was a hell of a big explosion. Almost 2,000 dead, 9,000 more injured, tens of thousands homeless, Halifax devastated. Fire and destruction are everywhere. People are walking dazed and confused. Horses pull wagons filled with what's left of families' belongings. They've already cleared the tracks and the trains are coming in to claim the wounded. The military have made their way to what is left of the waterfront. With no way of helping those left floating in the harbor, they call out to the port authorities for help. Station calling Halifax traffic there. You are unreadable. Get some shelter and say again. Mayday. All stations, all stations. This is Halifax traffic. From the harbor to the waterfront. To the core of the North End, mass destruction is in every direction. Where do you even start? My city of Halifax explosion hadn't happened, what would Halifax look like? What would we have gained? What would we have lost? I'm thinking of the lessons learned, or even the way we think of ourselves as a city that came back from terrible destruction and devastation. I'm Danielle McCready. This is The Signal Podcast. Podcast. 
Like many war-focused ports across the globe, Halifax had no emergency response procedures in place before the Halifax explosion. On January 22, 1918, weeks after the explosion, the Federal Ordering Council created the Halifax Relief Commission. Its primary task was to oversee the spending of nearly $21 million donated by Canadian and Allied governments to develop emergency response procedures. Transportation historian Dan Conlon is the curator of Pier 21 Museum of Immigration. So on the whole, the city responded really well in a very improvised but effective way, considering the enormity of the disaster, followed by a really powerful snowstorm. Um, But um, they were improvising. You know, there was no specific plan. There was good structure, but no plan. And uh, nowadays, kind of uh, most disaster planning sort of focuses on make sure you do have a good plan because you're not necessarily going to be able to improvise uh, and have those resources that uh, Halifax luckily had some of in 1917. It's not that Halifax would never have developed a plan for disaster management if there was no explosion, but the destruction and human misery led to a rapid implementation of new and innovative civic planning and social rehabilitation schemes. These included a master town plan and Canada's first public housing project, the Hydrostone Development. It was administered by the Halifax Relief Commission. Without the Halifax explosion, the city would have missed out on those early social services. What-ifs and maybes can be difficult for historians who focus on the facts of what did happen. Dr. Jock Murray is a medical historian and professor emeritus at Dalhousie University School of Medicine. He has devoted a lot of time to understanding the implications the Halifax explosion had on medical practices in Canada. I think a really important aspect of the response to the Halifax explosion was the presence of the military. See, the military are used to operating and organizing for the battlefield. Well, Halifax wasn't unlike a battlefield when that occurred. And they they knew how not only to manage the people who were injured, but they have a concept too. I mean, there are a couple of expressions that are used. One is to scoop and run which means you get out there, get the really serious injured person, get them into a hospital or the nearest uh, facility. And the other is to stay in play. And stay in play means you go out there and get the injured person, take care of them right in the place where they are. Well, they operated both of those in the explosion. They They had an arrangement with the dressing stations to be able to take care of people there, but they had the idea of scoop and run so that they could go out, take the seriously injured one, take it into the hospital. A lot of that organization was to keep the pressure off the hospital. Now, those concepts still continue to operate. The areas that were really important at that time was the organization of triage, so that you had to quickly determine um, the different levels of injury. People who could, they had injuries, but they could wait. People who really were at death's door that you had to manage right now. Now, that's a that's a highly developed military concept. Another lesson that, that was learned, I think, is the importance of having a disaster plan. What are you going to do if a major disaster occurs in your city? There are plans in place. There are plans in every hospital for how they're going to manage a disaster and what you do. And that's been around for a very long time. But it was, I think, the Halifax explosion that made it important that people consider having a disaster plan. If you didn't die in the explosion, the major injury was eye injuries because glass, virtually every window in the city 
was blasted out, people were standing in front of their windows. Although the technique of dealing with the eye injury had been known, um, what did happen because of the explosion, you suddenly had a lot of people who had eye injuries and even blindness, is that that's the strong influence for how they organized the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. Most of it, if you look at the history of the CNIB, they will tell you that the major influence about how they developed their programs and their approaches came from the Halifax explosion. Because no one suddenly had so many eye injuries at one time. We already had a school for the blind here. They very quickly responded. And so within a very short period of time, they had clinics, they had a minor hospital set up in the, in the school for the blind. And afterwards, they developed all sorts of programs to deal with the people, including pensions, uh, including paying for their medical expenses, uh, for providing glass eyes, for doing all the things that needed to be done. So a major program to approach the problem of blindness developed from the explosion. Other aspects of the city that might have changed um, in the short term, over the next decade, there was a lot of development that occurred because of the explosion. Funds that came from Massachusetts uh, were used to build buildings along University Avenue that were important. They built a public health clinic. They built a, an infectious disease hospital. They developed a number of these. In, they all occurred because of the support that came for the explosion. When they were still available afterwards, they were used to do things around the, the city that were important. It's anyone's guess as to whether or not these things would have developed over time without the explosion. But Peter Dykeis says without the explosion, some of the institutions that are known and relied upon today may not have existed, at least not in the same way. He's the director of the Dalhousie University Art Gallery and curator of an, an exhibit on the explosion. If the explosion hadn't happened, a lot of things would not have evolved. I mean, this university is um, ground zero for a number of initiatives, including the Institute of the Blind, because of the amount of blindness that happened because of the explosion. As I understand it, the United Way, as a social charity organization, came about because of the explosion. We did not have the federal um, infrastructure to just bring in um, relief. It was a combination of what was happening locally and what could be brought in. So the explosion itself kick-started a number of social initiatives that are completely embedded in the fabric of Canadian culture right now. After the explosion, there was a reckoning. Federal investigations were set up, the pilot of the Mont Blanc was put on trial. It would be easy to imagine that this disaster resulted in dozens of changes to rules in the harbor, but that's not what happened. No rules changed. Trent Erickson has the story. I'm Joel Zemmel. 
I'm a researcher, historian, and uh, I've written two books about the Halifax explosion. He says that he can't recall any specific rule or protocol that permanently changed in the harbor as a result of the explosion, but temporarily, certain rules were more heavily enforced. Ships weren't allowed in while other boats were coming down, which was basically what, what was supposed to be happening before. This specific rule was meant to prevent two boats from crashing while passing each other in the Narrows, the situation that caused the explosion. But this rule was already in place when the explosion happened. The issue wasn't a lack of rules, it was a loose adherence to the ones already there. And in 1917, technology was not yet advanced enough to smoothly let boats communicate with each other. This amplified human error. Robert Power is a retired marine pilot. My father was a pilot here for 46 years. When a large ship enters a harbor, it takes on a pilot to help guide it into port. This is standard all over the world. The pilot acts as the local knowledge that a captain might not have. What the currents are, where the water is, how deep it is. But pilots don't drive the ship. They only advise. On the morning of the incident, both ships performed a number of unusual maneuvers, maneuvers which Power thinks the highly experienced pilots would have advised against. The whole thing came down to the fact that I'm sure that there was some difference between the captain and the pilot. The Emo and the Mont Blanc misunderstood each other's attempts to communicate, and they had no third party to help them. But today, thanks to modern technology, a tragedy like this one would have been prevented. Halifax 3, elevator traffic, roger, the Sable Sea, outbound from the Narrows there, just passing uh, November Foxtrot there. The Halifax Marine Communications Traffic Service, or Halifax MCTS, uses the latest in communication and tracking technology to make sure the harbor runs smoothly. Hi, my name is Todd Billard. I am a uh, supervisor at MCTS uh, Halifax. MCTS monitors each and every boat in the harbor. Using radar, they can see a boat's speed, direction, and location. We're basically the eyes and ears of the harbor. They're in constant communication with boats from the moment they come near the harbor all the way until they leave. They also help ships communicate with each other, and they ensure harbor rules are being followed. There's a rule that if uh, they're 150 meters or more, then both cannot pass each other in the narrows. This is the same rule that Zemmel spoke about, the one that existed before the Halifax explosion but wasn't observed. The rule is still here, but now the technology exists to make sure ships actually follow it, and if ships don't follow it, MCTS will personally message both ships to sort out the situation. Billard's confident that this modern tech could have prevented the Emo and Mont Blanc's collision. At the time, there was no uh, installations like Halifax, MCTS, and that indeed w would have prevented that if, if we did have that at that time. Even with all this technology, mistakes still happen. That won't change. What has changed is that in order for a disaster to happen, there are far more pieces that have to fall out of line than there used to be. Technology, not rules, have progressed since 1917, and that's made our harbor safer. Halifax MCTS also controls the harbor around the Bay of Fundy. To see a picture of an MCTS operator at work, check out our Twitter, at Signal Radio HFX. As we've heard, in the months and years that followed, the Halifax Relief Commission rebuilt the city. But it would never be the same. Our producer, Will Gordon, joins me. Hello. So we aren't the only ones on the campus here at King's working on stories based off the Halifax explosion, are we? Upstairs, Professor Fred Valance-Jones has his classes working on producing a special map of 1917 Halifax. 
uh, basically what my class did was uh, we worked with the archives and uh, they provided us with a high resolution version of that map, much higher resolution than what's available online. Um, and so then we, uh, we uh, loaded that up in special software, uh, GIS software, and essentially recreated the street plan of 1917 Halifax um, and uh, in that area in Richmond and also drew all the buildings. What is special about this map? The classes are focused on gathering and inputting two kinds of data in their software. Here's Drew May, one of the journalists involved in the map creation. So this beige rectangle, that's an insurance map from earlier in 1917, I believe, that kind of shows where the houses were before the explosion. These circles here, and that shows the addresses of the people who died. So we thought it'd be interesting to look at how far away most people lived from the explosion who died in it. So they have listings of the damaged houses and the dead in the area, and putting them together, they can see the correlations between the dead and the damage. But for us, we can use it to see how 1917 Halifax is different from the Halifax as we know it today. So what did you learn? Well, some of the streets have changed. So there was a Halifax Relief Commission, which after the explosion, they came in and had just tons of power. So they could rearrange streets, um, and really kind of design the North End however they wanted to. And uh, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, the things that the, uh, the commission decided to do uh, was to change the street pattern in the old Richmond neighborhood. So uh, whereas it used to be kind of a grid pattern with streets running straight up what is a very steep hill, if you go there today and you sort of drive along Barrington Street near where Halifax Shipyard is and kind of you, you see that the streets going up the hill are very steep and, and quite narrow and whole new streets were made. And, and so one of the things they did was they built what is now known as Devonshire Street, which kind of runs up at an angle. Oh yeah, Barrington changes too. When you look at where Barrington is today, it was moved back from the water quite a bit. So the position has changed. So if the explosion didn't happen, uh, what would we have? Uh, Barrington closer to the waterfront, no Devonshire? Yes, but theoretically, without the explosion, you would have this denser, older cityscape around the North End waterfront because the commission had to rebuild the area. Until new development would have changed everything. Yeah. That was a general overview of how the city changed, thanks to the data from Fred Valance Jones and his classes. For a closer look at the area, here's Avi Jacob. Thanks, Will. I'm standing on Devonshire Avenue, in the north end of Halifax. As I walk along this short street, I'm heading in a strange direction. It doesn't look like any of the other streets around here. It's actually running across the grid of all of the other streets, gradually climbing up from the harbor. I visited James Boxall, geographer and map curator at Dalhousie University, to find out more. He rolled out some maps to show me how the Halifax explosion changed many things. I think the biggest thing that came out of the explosion in terms of the physical settlement was the hydrostone. And everybody knows that that's that settlement and it, it sticks out like a sore thumb on every single map before and after. You can see it's just one giant section of the city that came out redeveloped, repurposed specifically for people after the explosion. So that would be one thing probably wouldn't exist as it exists today. I mean, that area might be settled but it definitely wouldn't be the Hydrostone because that was done on purpose. Um, interestingly, one of the streets here, Devonshire Avenue that goes up towards the Hydrostone, that street was developed specifically 
because the horses taking the stone and the trucks couldn't get up straight, so they had to make a curve in order to keep the, the angle, uh, the slope, at a certain angle to allow them to go up. So the way that street goes wouldn't have existed in that way. So what if the explosion never happened? Devonshire probably wouldn't be here. And without the hydrostone and the rebuilding of this North End neighborhood, how would Halifax have been different? From where I'm standing, I can see the Irving shipyard and its cranes. Would those have been here if what came before wasn't destroyed? If the hydrostone hadn't existed there after the explosion, I wonder if Fairview would have been developed the way it was developed. And I also wonder if this section of the city that's, you know, like, there used to be an airport here. Um, I'm wondering if that, because this whole land in here from Connaught Avenue down towards the Arm, that section was developed after World War II, just during and after, for uh, military, because people coming back from the war needed a place to live. So these houses were prefab, so they were all looked the same. They were all put together very quickly because you needed to settle lots of people very quickly. So I'm wondering if that would have happened, um, if they might have settled in this section where the hydrostone is, um, or if people working in the dockyards and the Admiralty, or what's now DND, if they had have extended down further, possibly. Um, there's a possibility that maybe Africville wouldn't have been destroyed and the new bridge put in, because if people were more densely populated or differently in this area, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe that might still be there. Um, so many things. I mean, the exhibition grounds would still be there. How would that have changed Halifax? Would the Halifax Forum been rebuilt as it was? Would the hotels that were destroyed, would they have been rebuilt? Um, you know, would there have, my thing is, would there have been a second bridge? That's the one that always sticks in my, in my mind, is would there have been more reason to put in more ferries? Maybe there would have been a ferry from around the Pier 6 area, because there were little boats that went across. All these little things, you kind of wonder what would have happened. How would the city have expanded? It's, it's a very weird situation. If you took the explosion out of the city, it's like dominoes. Certain pieces would suddenly not fall into place. James Boxel is a geographer and map curator at Dalhousie University. So what if the Halifax explosion never happened? Clearly there were lessons that might not have been learned and Halifax would see itself differently. Maybe not as a place that endured terrible tragedy and rose from the ashes. A community that rebuilt in new and innovative ways. A place that 100 years later continues to honor the casualties and survivors of the Halifax explosion. That's it for the explosion episode of the Signal podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Signal Radio HFX. Thanks this week to our producers, Jade Tynes and Will Gordon. Mark Pinio is in the control room. Our audio professor is Pauline Dakin. I'm Danielle McCready. Thanks for listening.